And we're looking at places, as Connor mentioned, places that are significant in the Christmas story. Last week we looked at Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. And today we're looking at what? If you look at your bullet covers, why? Why what? Why Nazareth? All right. It's because that's where Jesus was raised from five on. Okay, now that we've settled that, come back next week and we'll look at why they called Paul, Paul of Tarsus. Really, um, obviously, that's where Jesus was raised after he was born in Bethlehem, went to Egypt for a few years, and then God directed them back to Nazareth. You know, that's the easy answer. But why would God choose a podunk little town of Nazareth to raise his, the Son of God? That's the question we're going to ask this morning. And similar to last week, God chose it um, because it was prophesied by the ancient prophets, and it confirmed God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness was seen in the prophets, the prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus in Matthew 2, uh, 2.21. So Joseph, he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. This is when God gave Joseph a dream to leave Egypt and head back to Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, and Archelaus was even more wicked, then Joseph was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, another dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Man, Joseph was obedient, you know. God gave him a dream, got up and left. God gave him a dream, returned. God gave him a dream, redirected his route. He was really sensitive to the Spirit of God. But look at this last verse. So, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. He, their son, Jesus, the Messiah, would be called a Nazarene. I did a word search on the word Nazareth or Nazarene, and I discovered that over 30 times it was used in reference to Jesus. Jesus the Nazarene, or from Nazareth. The crowds called Jesus the prophet from Nazareth. The servant girl uh, said of Peter, who was hiding out by the fire before the crucifixion, he, he, Peter, he was with Jesus of Nazareth. The demons even referred to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. Get away from me, Jesus of Nazareth. The soldiers at the cross, the angel at the tomb said to Mary, hey, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Paul was accused of being a ringleader for the Nazarenes. The Roman governor Pilate placed a sign above the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And so we can know that Jesus was from Nazareth. He could have been called Jesus of Galilee, Jesus of Israel, Jesus of um, Capernaum, where he did much of his ministry during ministry years. But instead, God chose to raise him in Nazareth, and he became known as Jesus of Nazareth. Even Jesus referred to himself as Jesus from Nazareth. Nazareth was a fulfillment of a 700-plus-year prophecy. What prophecy? Well, they said the prophets in Matthew 2 well, one of the prophets was Isaiah in Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This word branch is the word netzer in Hebrew. 
and it comes from the root the root word of Nazareth is Netzer, Nazareth, Netzer. And so they, they say Jesus was the branch. He was from Nazareth. The Old Testament, uh, written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, contains over 300 such prophecies. Many more are specific, and they're fulfilled in the life, the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Over 300 of them. For example... Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. He was born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. He came from the house of King David, 2 Samuel. Set to motion a massacre of the children in Jeremiah. Uh, spent a season in Egypt, prophesied in Hosea. He was called a Nazarene. Uh, he was rejected by his own people, Isaiah 53. He was betrayed by, for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah, His blood money would be used to buy a potter's field. Zechariah, he was crucified with criminals. His hands and feet were pierced. His side was pierced with a spear. Uh, people would cast lots for his clothes. None of his bones would be broken. He was buried in a rich man's grave. And he was resurrected from the dead. Those are just a few of the 300 prophecies. What are the odds of prophecies like this from several different prophets, hundreds of years, a thousand years before Christ's birth, what are the odds that they'd be fulfilled in one person? Well, did you know what the odds are of being struck by lightning on any given day of the week? The odds are 1 in 250 million, so it's a safe bet you could still play, finish your round of golf. But during the course of a lifetime, an average lifetime, it's 1 in 9,100 times, so you better not put your lights up during a storm on a ladder. In contrast, the odds that an average citizen of Washington, D.C. would get mugged or stabbed in the course of years only 1 in 1,681. I'm glad I live in Kansas. You've heard this illustration by Peter Stoner, who was the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College. In his uh, classic book, Science Speaks, he said, the probability or the odds that Jesus of Nazareth would be, uh, what could have fulfilled just eight of these 300 prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th. That's 17 zeros behind the one. I don't know how many millions or billions or zillions that would be. One person fulfilling 48 prophecies would be one in 10 to the 157th power. One person fulfilling 300 prophecies would be only Jesus, only the Son of God. And so then Stoner goes on to share this illustration. If you had a stack of silver dollars two feet high, and you stacked it on the ground, and then you stacked it across the entire state of Texas. Let's just take the stage here. Can you imagine two feet high, stacks of silver dollars covering the entire stage, and when no one's in here, I would take one, I would put an X on it with a red magic marker, and I would bury it somewhere in the middle, or somewhere. And then we'd mix them up, just stir them up, just, just stir them all up, and then have someone come in blindfold, said, go ahead and pick one silver dollar, one has an X in it. For them to pick that X would be almost impossible. But the illustration goes on to fulfill eight of the 300 prophecies in one person. You'd have to cover the entire state of Texas. Drop someone in in a helicopter, whatever 
county he wants to be dropped in, have them just pick one blindfolded, and for them to get the X on the silver dollar would be the odds. Picking the right one. This confirms that Jesus is the Messiah, is who God says he is because of the fulfilled prophecy. We can't even predict eight things about our child or grandchild or great-grandchild in our same family, knowing, that, knowing what the personality traits could be like. In our family with three children, they're all three different. And so even if we would have predicted eight personality traits or whatever and, and who they would marry and where would they would live and what occupation they would, you know, we couldn't even do that with our own kids, much less our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great times hundred grandchildren in the future. And yet, this is what the prophets did. If that many prophecies were fulfilled, then guess what? There are three times more promises about Jesus' second coming than his first coming. The word advent, we're celebrating advent, means coming. The first advent of, of Christ, of the Messiah, came on Christmas morning. The second advent we look forward to. There are three times more pro promises about his second coming than his first coming. And that should give us confidence, should give us hope, should give us peace that God is in control and he will be true to his faithful and faithful to his promises. And we say, yeah, yeah, ho-hum, Jesus is coming back. We know that. We've heard that all our lives since we're this old. Herod's chief priests and teachers of the law, they knew of the prophecy of the first advent of the Messiah. They told Herod, oh yeah, he's going to come, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, just five miles away from here, Herod. And yet, it did nothing to impact their attitude and their action, even despite the fact that an entourage of Persian magi from a thousand miles away came marching through Jerusalem looking for the promised Messiah, which freaked out Herod, and he called together the chief priests and teachers of the law, and they told him the prophecy. Despite the fact that there's this unusual bright star overhead that would move over in, just overhead Bethlehem and shine on the city of Bethlehem, town of Bethlehem. Despite that, the, the teachers of the law and the Jewish priests, they did nothing that impacted their actions and attitudes because the prophecy was 700 years old. Oh, yeah, yeah, we know, we know. We've heard it all our lives. He, Messiah's going to come. It's been over 2,000 years since we've received the first promise that Jesus would come again. Oh, yeah, yeah, we know. Ho-hum. Jesus is coming back. Well, does that knowledge impact your attitude and your action on a daily basis? Or it's like, oh, yeah, he'll come back someday, and, and then we'll just go on living as normal. How do these promises impact your attitude and actions? 2 Peter 3, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He is patient He's not wanting to come back because if he comes back today, then there will be many unsaved people he loves 
who will go to a Christless eternity. Verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you, my children, you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and be at peace with him. In other words, it should have incredible impact on our thoughts and on our actions, knowing that we are children of the promise. Nazareth, Nazareth fulfilled God's prophecy in the first advent, assuring that he is the Messiah and assuring us that he will be faithful to come again in his second advent. Why did God choose Nazareth for his son? To fulfill promise, prophecy and his faithfulness. Secondly, to identify with the least, the last, and the lost. Nazareth was ordinary. It was unheard of, basically. Just one little town among many others. Everything surrounding Jesus' birth was common. It was simple. It was plain. Mary and Joseph, ordinary, common, small-town people. Carpenter, wife. He was born in Bethlehem, not in the big city Jerusalem. He was born in a borrowed stable, and incidentally, when he died on the cross, they needed a borrowed tomb. The first recipients of the news of the birth were common shepherds. David in Psalm 144 says, O Lord, what are we, human beings, that you care for them and us, mere mortals that you think of us? And God answered with Jesus. He said, this is how much I care for you, and he gave us his very best. He gave us his son. He said to the shepherds, shepherds, unto you, unto you is given this day in the city of David a savior. It's for you, shepherds. You may feel unimportant. You may feel forgotten and unnecessary and insignificant, but God does not think that way about you. In fact, he delights in using those who realize their need for him. 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things and despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Nazareth would not have even made it on Joseph and Mary's short list of little towns to live in. Because after all, they're raising the Messiah. But first, they wouldn't want to live there because of the bad reputation that they had when they left five years earlier. They wouldn't want to return to all the murmuring and slander. Uh, hey, did you hear? Did you hear who's back in town? Oh my gosh. Joseph and Mary with their little, <laughs> with their little kid. What chutzpah to come back here? Secondly, they wouldn't have chosen Nazareth because Nazareth would have hardly been the place to raise a king or a messiah. It'd be like Nowheresville, like raising, moving to Mayberry, like moving to McPherson. Uh, or it'd be even like moving to an insignificant backwoods place that no one ever heard of, you know? Gregory Dawson said that Nazareth was an obscure little town, one of about 200 little towns in the area. No different, nothing unique about it. Furthermore, Nazareth was a home 
for the Roman military base, the garrison, for uh, these military who are serving the northern areas of Galilee. And Jews despise Romans. Archaeologists discovered Roman baths in the next slide here recently in Nazareth that would have served the Roman soldiers who kind of overtook the town. And so being labeled a Nazarene as Jesus was would have been synonymous with being a Roman sympathizer, a compromiser, an enemy of the Jews. So Nazareth or Nazarene would have been understood as a derogatory put-down. In other words, you're from Nazareth? Loser. And that's why Nathaniel responded to Philip, two of the disciples, when Nathaniel said, I think I found the Messiah. Can, he said, his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, Nathaniel's response was, can anything good come out of Nazareth, Philip? Are you kidding me? The Pharisees responded to Nicodemus when Nicodemus was trying to um, support Jesus in John 7. Nicodemus, are you too from Galilee? Search and see that no prophets come from Galilee. And even Jesus himself called himself a Nazarene. Why? Because he, he, said, he said to the Apostle Paul after, on the road to Damascus, he said Apostle Paul when he was blinded and struck blind, he said, why are you persecuting me, Paul? And Paul says, Saul of Tarsus said, Saul, who are you? He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Jesus identified with Nazarenes because he wanted to identify with the least, the last, and the lost. Nazareth, therefore, would have been a perfect choice for Joseph and Mary to raise their son, according to God, because it fit Jesus' mission for why he came. He came for the least, the last, the lost, the forgotten, the insignificant, the overlooked, those who recognize their need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. During his ministry years, Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners. He was often um, rebuked for eating with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and, and just befriending them. And Jesus taught, hey, healthy people don't need a physician, but sick ones do. I did not come to call the righteous people to myself, but sinners. He said, I've come to seek and save the lost, the poor, the foreigners, the strangers, the aliens, the orphans, and the widows. Speaking of little ones, he said, let little, little children come to me, he rebuked his disciples. Don't keep them from me. Let them come to me, for the kingdom belongs to such as these. And I'm so glad that Jesus came for the least of these. Clap, clap, clap. Yeah, I'm so glad because oftentimes I feel like a least of these, don't you? I feel insignificant. I feel like I don't measure up. I feel broken and inconsistent in need of a Savior, not just for salvation, but for daily life. But other times I feel more like Herod's chief priests and teachers of the law, forgetting that I really need a Savior. Ho-hum, yeah, no, Jesus is coming, and he's coming again, and, but I go on living for myself, and the world revolves around me and my needs, and I wake up, what can I do to, you know, so that I have a good day today, and Pastor Kent Hughes tells a story about another pastor who pastored a large church 
that planted three mission churches. And these three mission churches were in the inner cities around the, the big mother church. And these mission churches did amazing outreach ministry, uh, had incredible testimonies, sort of like New York City Teen Challenge, right? Nikki Cruz and just churches like that. We're from New York, yeah, Manny. Um, anyway, um, during one of the services, uh, oh, and so every year, first of the year, January, first Sunday, invited all three churches to come to the mother church to have a communion service like we're going to have today. But in that church, they invited people to come forward and pray at the altar. We call this the altar on these steps here. Pray before they receive communion as they came forward. And so these churches uh, gathered together. And in one particular uh, uh, Sunday of the first Sunday of the year, um, there was a former criminal who had been incarcerated for some years who was out kneeling right next to the judge that put him in prison for seven years, right next to them. And they were praying and, and both knew the Lord. And so after the service, the judge was walking out with a pastor. They were good friends and said, hey, pastor, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? And as the two walked along in silence for a few minutes, the judge said, wasn't that a miracle of grace? And the pastor nodded in agreement. Yeah, that man is certainly a miracle of God's grace indeed. And then the judge stopped and he looked at the pastor and said, uh, to whom are you referring? Well, the pastor said, of course, the, the former convict who was kneeling by you. He said, no, 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 pastor. I, I was speaking of myself. You see, it's not a surprise to me that this convict received God's grace after he left jail and met the Lord. He had nothing but a history of crime uh, behind him when he understood that Jesus wanted to be a savior then he gladly received him because he knew how much he needed help but look at me I was taught from the earliest infancy to live as a gentleman that my word was to be my bond that I was to, I said my prayers I went to church I took communion and so on and then I went to Oxford I obtained my degrees was called to the bar and eventually became a judge and I was sure that I was all that I needed to be Though, in fact, I didn't realize how great of a sinner I was in need of help. Pastor, it was God's grace and grace alone that drew me to himself. It was God's grace that opened my heart to understand my need for Christ. Pastor, I am the greater miracle. You know, sometimes when people have high morals and they're religious and, you know, they, they have you know, successful, you know, these are the hardest people to reach for Christ. They don't see their need for Jesus. It's the broken who hunger and thirst for Christ. It's the ones who say, oh man, I am poor in spirit. It's the tax collector that beats his breast, that falls on his face, and the righteous one says, uh, um, thank you, God, I'm not like that guy. Who went home justified, Jesus said. It, it was the sinner. It wasn't this guy over here, the Pharisee. We can, a lot of times I can have a Pharisaical attitude. Say, I really don't need God. Yeah, I know he's coming back. I know he loves me, but it really doesn't impact my attitude and my action. I want to conclude with this. When we understand how much we need him, then it will greatly impact our attitude and action, not just for our salvation, but every day of our lives.
we will, we will desire to love and serve those who are the least of these, those who are broken, the least, the last, and the lost. Because we are his Christians, Christians, means little Christ. We will do the same thing that Jesus did. We will represent or represent Jesus on this earth as his hands and his feet in very tangible ways. We will do this. It will come naturally to us because it's his spirit living within us and living through us. In fact, Jesus said at the end of time, when I do come back, you're going to stand before me at the judgment on judgment day and I will separate the sheep and the goats oh Jesus what will that be like what will I be for sure well you tell me Matthew 25 the king will say to those on his right the sheep come you who are blessed by my father take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world for I was hungry you gave me something to eat I was thirsty you gave me something to drink I was a stranger and you invited me in I needed clothes and you clothed me I was sick and you looked after me I was in prison and you came to visit me then the righteous will answer Lord uh, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink when did we see you stranger and invite you in and needing clothes and clothe you when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you I don't remember going to a jail and the king and I didn't see you in jail when I did the king will reply truly I tell you whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine you did for me and then this goes on the goats whatever you did not do for one of these least of these you did not do for me and that's when the separation will come It'll be based on our actions and our attitudes toward the least of these. Are we prepared to be held accountable when Jesus returns or when we go to him? So each one of us should be able to take out a scrap piece of paper right now and, and, and write down, this is how I've cared for one of the least, the last, or the lost this week. Boom, just write it out. This week or, okay, this month, or maybe this past year. And if you're unable to do that, then there might be some concern as to whether you are a Christian, a Christ follower, because you're not walking as Jesus walked. However, it's not that complicated. Listen, if you've participated in any, I'll give you a few examples, in Operation Christmas Child, shoebox to send all around the world, to those who are the poorest of the poor, children, then you're like Jesus. If you read to a little one at church this past couple weeks, like Daryl Arthod here in the middle, bottom, then you're like Jesus. If you rock babies in the nursery and you've given up a Sunday morning to come and serve in church like this, you're like Jesus. If you've donated or packed or delivered a Christmas food basket, this, every Christmas to the, those who are struggling or if, you've, um, if you ring bells on the top right like the children, um, our youth are doing for Salvation Army or if you went Christmas caroling like several of us did to encourage our shut-ins and are lonely if you, are, if you write notes of encouragement to someone who's lost a loved one if you've uh, donated food to the food bank in town, if you prepared a meal for someone in crisis, if you prayed for the lost 
or people in crisis, if you take home the insert or prayer list and say, I'm going to pray for these people this week, if you support our missions and ministries by giving faithfully, then you are caring for the least of these, which is evidence that you are a Christ follower. These activities do not earn our salvation, but they confirm our salvation. The saying goes, we are not saved by grace and works, but by grace that works. It's our evidence. But if our lives are absent of caring for the least of these or the lost, then it should cause us some concern. And as we go to the communion table in a few moments, we have to do some business with God if we're concerned about that. Because it will be evidenced in our lives. What we really believe will be shown in our deeds. Why did God choose Nazareth for a son to be born? To let us know that it confirmed God's faithfulness. It, uh, he prophesied about the Messiah coming, and he's promising that he will come again. And secondly, because he wants to let us know that he identifies with the least, the last, and the lost. And as his followers, we'll do likewise. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, as we go to the communion table this morning, we do want to listen to you. We want to hear you. We want to sense your presence. We want to allow your spirit to work in our lives. God, perhaps we've been on a selfish bent as of late, and we need things to confess, Lord. We need to be other-centered. We need to be much more aware of those around us in our sphere of influence so that we can be your hands and feet. Lord, what a better time to be your representatives than at Christmas, the season of giving, rather than the season of purchasing. Lord Jesus, may we look like you. And may we receive our joy in giving as well, I pray. Thank you for coming to us. Now, Lord, as we go to the communion table, pray that you meet with us. In Christ's name, amen.